<clears throat> I am so excited to be here today with Mark Lefevre of Navigating Patterns, a wonderful YouTube channel where he obviously is looking at all the patterns in the world and, and uh, analyzing them. And the other day, he made a tweet that really stuck out to me. And uh, <clears throat> what he said in this tweet was the difference between being is good and emergence is good cannot be understated. One is actually good. The other is actually Gnosticism. So <clears throat> I tweeted back at Mark and I said, you win tweet of the day. <laughs> and can we talk about this? Because I think it's a very critical point. Um, as I'm trying to understand many of these things myself and trying to kind of thread the needle through a lot of things that are going through my head. <clears throat> so welcome, Mark. Good to have you here. Great to be back. Uh, love your channel, as always. I don't uh, I don't watch all your videos, but uh, the ones I do watch, I always enjoy because you have such wonderful stuff. So Thank it's good you to so be much. back. Thank you so much. Well, so <clears throat> I have a couple of things I want to say before I get started. One is that... <clears throat> Excuse me. We have a big treat coming up in May. Um, Dr. Michael Levin and Matt Siegel of Footnotes to Plato. He's probably a doctor too, if I, if I think about it, um, are going to have a conversation uh, about Alfred North Whitehead. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting. And then the other thing I wanted to say, I don't get any money from this. This is just from my heart. This is my favorite Christmas gift. It just looks like a coffee cup, but I don't know if you can see the brand name there. Ember. Ember. Okay. Ember. Yeah. And you notice those two little dots there. Those charge up this cup. So you can plug this little thing in. It's got a plug in there right there. Mm. Plug this little thing in. It charges up and you'll get at least the time to drink through three or four cups of coffee where you can take your time sipping and it'll stay exactly the perfect temperature all the time because there's an app. So you can put it at 135 or 140 or 145, whatever you want your coffee at. It has revolutionized my life. So <laughs> That's I thank, wonderful. I thank my daughter for this terrific gift. That's fantastic. Good. I'm glad you have uh, such a joyful toy. Now, let's get back to your comment. <clears throat> the difference between being is good and emergence is good cannot be understated. So what got you thinking about that and what did you mean by it? Yeah, that's a great question. So what's been happening is uh, Manuel Post and I have been working away with our little community, which is mostly uh, moved over to my Discord server, The Mark of Wisdom. And um, Ethan, who's uh, one of our one of our constant companions on and off as he's driving around doing deliveries in his truck um, mentioned uh, that, that this idea of, well, the way they're acting, it's like emergence is good instead of being as good. And I just thought that was brilliant. I'm like, Oh, that's really good. Ethan, Ethan's very insightful. And um, a, a lot of this talk about Gnosticism is going on because James Lindsay is sort of focusing in on that. Right. And um uh, one of the other people that contributes, Aiden, is just like, everything's Gnosticism. I mean, he goes a little overboard at times. But it's interesting that, you know, all these threads are sort of coming together, right? And uh, I don't like all of what James Lindsay is saying. I mean, he's very accurate, but some of the stuff goes a little, little over the top with the connections, right? Um, but I, I think that's right. I think what, what we're really seeing is Gnosticism 
uh, you know, sort of. Okay, so what's your hat. definition of Gnosticism? <clears throat> so, yeah, for me, the, the Gnosticism is expressed a couple of different ways. The way James Lindsay talks about it is there's a there's a, a, a creator God and he's evil. And basically, if we can get behind the creator God, we'll, we'll get to the good God who, who actually loves us or something like that. It's, it's a weird... Uh, and, and, you know, he's pointing at Karl Marx and Hegel and, you know, doing this philosophical line of, of rationality or something, roughly speaking. And I, I actually don't, I think that's a little silly. I don't, I don't think you need, you need that. I think that any time that you do anything that sort of doesn't account for creation or denies creation or sort of starts in the middle and like or sort of assumes a bunch of stuff and then what you're going to end up with Gnostic looking thought, right? Because it, it doesn't take a lot of, cognitive effort in my opinion i a lot of people like hegel i kind of think he's an idiot sorry i just not been impressed by anything everything hegel said it's like you know honestly i've heard three-year-olds make the very same arguments with with smaller words but the same arguments so I'm, you know I, the fancy words are nice but like it really is the kind of an argument a three-year-old come up with and so i think that's part of the problem is that if your cognition's freed up let's suppose you live in a very affluent society and you really you really don't have a lot of cognitive load and you, you know, and you're anxious about the world because you're not doing sort of rote work or simple work. And you, you know, you could spend your time ruminating and come to the same conclusions, Karl Marx and Hegel and a bunch of other Gnostic crazy people. Um, and, and then you're going to find them, right? You're going to look and then you're going to be like, oh, you know what? That Hegel guy, but, but I came up with it on my own. So I must be at least as smart as Hegel. And I was like, well, I don't think Hegel's very smart. So like low bar, but, I, I think that's what's happening. I think a lot of people are sort of coming to the conclusions of Gnosticism on their own because it's not that hard to come up with if you're not, well, you know, paying so attention. Let's right. hold that thought there. Um, I, I did a, a um, episode with Michael talking about James Lindsay's video. Mm. And in the comments, Nate made a comment, uh, which I thought was very helpful. He said, the distinguishing feature of Gnosticism is the view that material reality is evil, comma, comma is important, often the creation of a separate God. It is the second half of that sentence that is definitely a problem and heretical. But right. that fallen world is in some sense evil and not yet the perfect creation and even dead is simply good Pauline and Johannine theology. This dead fallen world is precisely what Christ comes to restore into life, to transform the world into the creation, which is simply to say that earth without heaven is dead, but heaven without earth remains a seed waiting for the earth to cooperate with it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with everything that Nate is saying, but I think it's an interesting distinction that the problem where Gnostics really get into trouble is when they try to posit that there is a, an evil God that is connected to the creation, a kind of demiurge or um, something that came before God and that, that whatever that was is evil. Right. And that that's the reason that the world is in such a mess. And, right. and then the, the other part of Gnosticism that troubles me a lot is this idea that they know things that we don't know. They're on the inside, their little secret elite clique that has all this secret elite information. 
that's the part that really gets gets me into i mean makes me feel like they're in big trouble there because when you do that basically you're saying that this that god's good news god's word god's truth is not accessible to children is not accessible to people that right. that have mental incapacities and i just simply don't believe that's true your your 3 yeah. year old who can come up with some uh, hegel's ideas or marx i mean my 3 year old used to say why can't everything just cost one penny why do things have to cost money <laughs> you're right <laughs> that, that's right. marx in a nutshell isn't it yeah pretty much <laughs> right yeah so so anyway at the end of that comment he says earth without heaven is dead but heaven without earth remains a seed waiting for the earth to cooperate with it that's part where i i run into a little bit of maybe debate with nate in that that seems to imply i might be wrong so i don't know what nate is thinking but it, to me it seems to imply that somehow god needs creation god needs man god needs earth in or, or or whatever man is doing in order to complete his um to complete himself i i i don't i think god creates out of love not out of necessity so but i mean mm. nate may totally be on board with that but nevertheless what what he said made me think about matthew pajot's frame that heaven informs and earth expresses right and and man is in the middle of that so emergence is is the bottom-up thing that's supposed to happen according to the gnostics on its own yes <laughs> yeah and uh and heaven informs that's the that's the top-down thing the, the emanation i guess and then the the emergence so um why don't you comment on on that and then when the next thing i want to do is show a little video clip of emergence okay yeah yeah, yeah i mean i think that um yeah a lot of neat stuff is just too theological for me to worry about i can't i can't i, I don't play theology i don't know any theology i don't care about theology if 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 theology is the answer again we're screwed for the same reason you mentioned earlier right not everybody can play that game and mm -hmm. I don't believe that not everybody can be saved like that's mm -hmm. anti-Christian in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I just don't buy that. Right. It's the same. It's the same argument that Jordan Peterson made to Sam Harris years ago at the fourth debate. Right. Of the first four that they had where he basically said, you know, Sam, this is all well and good for you. And, you know, you've got what a 130 IQ. But what about all the people that don't. Right. And then if you listen closely, although you don't have to listen that closely, in my opinion, a bunch of people laugh. Hmm. And it's that elitism, right? It's that whole, oh, well, we've got, you know, to your point with the Gnostics, well, we've got the forbidden knowledge. And it's like, mm -hmm. uh, knowledge is not the thing. And then you 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 run into that as a as a recurring theme, right? And so you 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 know, you look at say John Vervecki's after Socrates, and he basically says, Well, obviously Socrates is being um cheeky or silly or whatever, when he says, I know I know nothing, that's obviously not true. And I'm like, Actually, that's not obvious at all. And I think Socrates actually believed that because he understood that knowledge is, doesn't have the value that everybody assigns it, and uh, which would make him not a Gnostic, actually, would make him an anti-Gnostic. And it's interesting that anybody, and John's not the only one doing this, but a lot of people are doing this, just saying, like, well, Socrates was just a smart guy and he knew all this stuff. And it's like, no, Socrates is three years old. And like, there's advantages to being three years old and being able to question everything. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but he was also a cynical skeptic and never made any truth claims and didn't build anything. You know, I mean, the only two things he did, well, three things he did good, right, is I know I know nothing. Yes, denigrate knowledge. That's a good idea. I, I, I'm all in, right? Because when you denigrate knowledge, you raise up deeds, right? With what you're doing in the world, what your participation You, you raise is up what? Deeds, participation. Deeds. Oh, action, yeah. Yeah, action, participation, right? You raise that up. Mm -hmm. Right. And and the other thing that Socrates did was he questioned everything. Right. He he broke down knowledge for other people and said, these things you think, you know, you don't know. Like that that was his process. I mean, this is why I think when he says, I know, I know nothing. He's being sincere. It's not a it's not a joke. It's not a troll. It's not a it's not a ha ha. Right. It's a no. This is what I do like all the time. And and that has its utility. And the third thing he did was he stuck by his guns and drank the poison. Like, that's great, right? Because he sacrificed the community for the greater good of the community rather than anything else. And, I mean, you can assign a dozen other reasons because things don't have single reasons, uh, we'll say, or single causes. Uh, but that happened. And, you know, those those to me are the, the only good points of Socrates and everything else is sort of whatever. So so I think that, and I think that's important to to sort of understand is that, um, when you're putting knowledge up, that's the Gnosticism, right? Gnosis is knowledge. Uh, and that's where you run into trouble is whenever you're sort of looking at knowledge and saying that this is the value that, that we care about the most. And then you, you know, you, you end up doing the Sam Harris thing that he's done twice now that I, I disagree with, you know, basically talking about dead children. And I'm like, I, I don't know, I'm not a fan. So yeah, it's just not good to watch. It's not even good to see, you know, people who were good until they weren't, right? And then they just blow up and it's no it's no fun. It's happening all over the place too. He's not the only one. A lot of people seem to be having a problem now. Now that now that they expose themselves to wider parts of the world, these people who were fundamentally good end up just tripping over the morals and, and ethics left, right, and center. Well, I mean, you know, Jonathan Peugeot is always talking about how we're gonna flip upside down. <laughs> Um, or maybe it's going to be flipping right side up again, but, but there's a lot of flipping going on. Yeah. 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 Well, and I don't, I don't even think it's flipping in that case. I, I think fundamentally, you know, and I said this for years about Sam Harris, you know, well over a decade. Um, I said, you know, he's not, not capable of being a moral agent in the world. Eventually he'll stray into evil because you're just more likely to stray into evil than you are to stray into good, but he's lost and he's straying. He doesn't have an ethical system. And he never had one. And he just says he does. And, you know, he didn't. And it was clear that he didn't to me. I don't know why everybody else missed it, but it's clear he didn't. Couldn't do the trick. It's like, we can't, if you can't do the trick, you probably can't be ethical. And like, fair enough. But also, you know, eventually you're going to trip over, you know, dead children left, right and center as he did. So that's too bad. It's very sad. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're good just because you're good. You're good right now under no stress with no exposure and then something happens and yeah now you're not good anymore well i think a lot of that um the danger that people get into arises out of that same issue which i think before they weren't thinking of it as emergence but they were looking for something that would explain everything without god <clears throat> and and so they're all moving around in that arena looking for something and then aha the scientists come up with emergence and Okay, now we have a name for it. Right, right. Well, and, it's creation denial. This is, yeah. I keep telling people, no, 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 they're, they're, yeah. they're denying creation. They're ignoring creation. They're avoiding creation. And that's really all it is. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see your video because we can go into yeah. that right there. Well, it'll be great. Let, let's do this. It's just, I'm just going to show one minute of it. It's about a 10 minute video, but I'm just going to show one minute. And uh, can you see that video? Yes. How particle life emerges from simplicity. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to watch a minute of this. So for the people who are listening on podcast, it shows a lot of particles of different colors. And as time this goes by, the particle particles life. are moving together. It's a very simple particle system that creates these incredibly beautiful lifelike structures. It can be explained in a few seconds. And if you know how to code, you could write your own version of it today. It's a perfect example of emergence. The phenomenon when many simple small parts make up a larger structure that suddenly shows complex behavior. I will explain how all of this works in the second half of the video. But for now, I will just leave you with a few beautiful impressions of particle life. So the particles have moved together and begun to build these incredibly complex structures. It's very beautiful. And we'll stop there. And uh, I don't know if you caught that part at the very beginning of the video when he's talking. To me, the yeah. most interesting thing he says is, and if you know how to code, you can build this for, for yourself. Right. So, so those particles don't just arise out. I mean, those beautiful structures don't just arise out of those particles accidentally. Right. The, the algorithm is coded in. The rules are coded in. And Right. Well, and, and way more than that, right? Like the, the funny thing that strikes me about this sort of stuff all the time is, you know, and I've had these conversations with people and they don't, they don't understand, right? It's like you're running a simulation. That's what you're running technically. And the irony of that is that he wrote his code in Java, which if you're a technical person would be extremely funny because that's an extra layer of silliness on top of something that, that doesn't need that layer. Um, but you know, he, he just sets up all these simple rules, right? And then you can change the rules on the screen. I, like I looked at the software and I was just like, this is, this is bizarre. But he's ignoring, you need a computer. Somebody needs to have built that computer. That computer is built out of a bunch of stuff, right? And then, and then there's a bunch of software that, that isn't built by the people who build the computer, by the way, right? It's written by other people, right? And you need that software. And then, it, it, you know, it's there's so many technical layers there, and I actually could go through them all on the top of my head, but I, I don't want to bore people, so I won't. Uh, but it's a ridiculous number of layers. And at the end of the day, you look at, at the stuff that you can download uh, that he gives you as an executable on your computer, and uh, it's wonderful. You know, you, you can get you can set up your own rules, like how the colors interact with each other, because that's basically how it's based. And then you set the color rules and then sure, it, you know, but this is a well-known in computer science. It was known in like the fifties. It's not even remotely new. Um, and it's also the thing that, that like Dawkins talks about in uh, uh, that he did in the seventies with uh, evolution, 
Um, and then somehow misreads all the work that he did, which is very strange. Um, but but a lot of people like the, the computing history is full of evolution simula simulators, but they're missing. The creator is you. And plus all the people you rely on to create, they're just ignoring that part and saying, if you have the, to your point, if you have the secret knowledge, you can build a world that does this. And that just makes you God. And you're not even noticing that that's what's happening. And, you know, I'm fairly sure somebody wrote that down in a book uh, a few thousand years ago that that's a bad idea, but like, what do I know? So yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, so here we are. Yeah, so um, when you when you emailed me about um, about the James Lindsay video, one of the things you said was that um, <clears throat> People seek out Marx and Hegel because they already think that way. They came to it themselves because it is a pattern we all can embody. Then when they get someone else thinking that way, they validate their own ideas, usually altering them. And this is why it's not a religion with a clear through line. Everyone makes their own chaotic version. Um, I thought that was a very interesting point that you made. So um, I wondered if you might want to comment on that at all. Yeah. So uh, this is sort of akin to, you know, not to pick on John Verveke, but I guess we have to. Um, his description of steal the culture and his description of steal the culture is, well, I want to do something like what Augustine did. Right. Which is you had a bunch of people. So you've got Rome, right. The big Roman Empire is doing the Rome thing, which, you know, is all terrible and, and whatnot, according to whomever uh, it's probably the best uh, the best place and time to live uh you know around that around that uh, uh whole period of history uh because you had access to Rome and Rome was a pretty pretty cool thing at the end of the day a lot of technology that we subsequently lost and he contrasts that with what Augustine's doing Augustine is doing it's a little strange right because all these people are off in their homes in their own little churches worshiping and that takes over Rome. And that, and that, look, I mean, if that's where you start, which I would argue is the literal middle of the story, uh, then that sounds very persuasive, as though it's a thing that can happen, right? But it's actually ignoring the starting point of the story or the beginning of the story or the creation of the reason why people are all in their houses worshiping right which roughly for christians would be the resurrection and so it's not that they're just worshiping in their houses they're all worshiping based on the resurrection and the gospel right they're not just worshiping random things in their houses and so the irony here for me is that what we have today and if you want to call it gnosticism i think that's totally fair is a bunch of people worshiping their own things right by themselves not not in communion right but finding other people to worship with whether it be the climate the race the safety uh you know there's dozens there's really mm -hmm. dozens of these religions now right yeah. and so yeah. if you think of it that way it's like oh so we have steal the culture without the resurrection that's what we have uh but also nobody likes it and nobody wants it to continue so maybe no and just I'm just throwing that. Maybe we could stop doing that. I'm just so, so I'm not familiar with his idea of steal the culture. Is the is the idea there that if you get everybody doing practices in groups, 
in your practices or meditation and so forth, that that will be the equivalent of the people in their homes praying? I don't think John goes that far with it. I don't think it's a really connected idea for him, at least not that uh, I've heard. I, I don't. Oh, so he, he was just me. he was just kind of telling that story. OK, he was describing what he meant by steal the culture because he's been asked many, many times and he only answered it like a year ago. I think, you know, he's been talking about it forever. And, and I think that answer is only like a year old or something in that frame. And and that was when, he, you know, he said, oh, like Augustine. And he'd said that before. But, you know, he really sort of explained it. Right. And said, no, no, like Augustine, because there were all these people in their homes doing their own church thing. And and that is sort of the the, the thrust of something like uh, the religion that's not a religion. Right. That is the thrust. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's what he's sort of on about. But I would argue, like I said, in, in the ultimate irony, that's what everyone's complaining about is that this is the this is the problem well the other day i was listening to a video of uh andrew clavin i didn't used to listen to andrew clavin because he, he always starts with a big political rant and i'm just not into that at all but usually about a third of the way through his videos i guess he gets into talking about very um beautiful ideas about how we can renew our culture and he wrote this beautiful book the truth and beauty where he talks about um the ideas that were from the romantic poets trying to get back to a christian vision you know trying to come back from the reformation with a more christian vision and it's it's a really wonderful book lovely book i would love to have him on sometime hello andrew if you're out there listening <laughs> please come and talk to me um or if anybody knows how to get hold of Andrew Clavin, let me know. Um, but anyway, in this recent video he did, so I started, after I read that book, I've watched a few of his videos. And, and one of them, the title caught my eye. The title is something like, both the woke and the devil are trying to convince us that they don't exist or have convinced us that they don't exist. And uh, he's not he's not equating the woke with the devil. That's not what he's doing. He's just saying there's this idea that, that the the woke movement is trying to convince the populace that there isn't really a woke movement in the same way that Antifa, you know, they were always saying there is no Antifa. They're just, you know, little groups of people doing their own thing. Um, but it was interesting to me how openly he spoke about the devil because to be truthful, most of our churches anymore don't ever talk about the devil. And I guess that's right. because the devil has convinced us that he doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, then we don't have to worry about the devil, you know, but Jesus talked about the devil. He said the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking, or was that Paul? Seeking whom he may devour. Maybe that was Paul. But um, yeah, if if we don't recognize that there are spiritual powers that are enemies of the cross of Christ, then um, we're leaving out a very important part of life. But anyway, this video of Andrew Clavens was very interesting. And in it, he talks about stealing the culture back. He says some mm -hmm. people say that... that um, the woke and, and people of that ilk are the revolutionaries. But he said, no, no, they've already won the culture. 
they're the mainstream now. They're the mainstream in in the news. They're the mainstream in in Hollywood. They're the mainstream in academia. They're the mainstream in government. They've already won the culture. It's it's the people who want to get the culture back, steal the culture. He doesn't yeah. use that phrase, but those are the people that are the revolutionaries. And um, now I have a little problem with that because it starts using that war language, and then that sets yeah. us up in a in a confrontational thing, which I think is yeah. always a mistake because. One of the reasons that some things come back and bite us so hard is because we pushed against them. And if you right. just, I think sometimes if you just let something run its course, um, it's, if it's not of God and if it's not useful, it's just going to wither away. But when you start pushing back against it, then then they're the martyrs, they're the victims, they're the ones that need people to come and feel sorry for them. And then that just strengthens the whole movement. So, Right. Yeah, I, I yeah. There's so much there. I mean, I I have a video on on, on my channel navigating patterns um, about the culture war, and actually, I, I I conceive of it completely differently. It's really a war to have a culture or not, because Gnosticism is we're going to have ten cultures or twenty cultures or a hundred. Who knows how many cultures they're going to come up with? Because they keep picking different highest values. Is it the Earth? You know, is it the climate? Because those are not even the same thing. They're they're in conflict with one mm -hmm. another, right? Is it is it this idea of equality, right? Is it safety? These are all competing highest values, uh, but they compete at some level. At some level, they don't compete like everything else, but at some level, they do. And then those turn into you know religious uh, 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 sorts of concerns. But culture requires that we're under one common ideal. Mm -hmm. Right. One one common like sense of the good or whatever. And if you don't if you don't have that, uh, then then you, you you end up in what looks like a culture war with people vying to get the culture. But actually, none of them can have it anyway. So if they win, it will be no culture again. And so that's my argument is, no, it's really a fight for culture or no. culture. So that's really the fight that's going on. And it is a fight. And I think that, you know, Part of the problem is, you know, to your point, yeah, there's a pushback component, but also there's an ignorance component. And if you look at something like Gnosticism and emergence is good, why why would emergence be good, right? Well, Satan doesn't exist, so you've taken the bad out of the situation, or you've predefined it as, you know, Hitler or something, you know, yeah. pithy, yeah. right? Um, you know, and something like that cannot be reduced to that, right? Uh, ben Shapiro makes a great argument about that. You wouldn't kill baby Hitler because he's a baby, right? It's like, right, fair enough. Right. And he did save Germany before he did bad things. He saved Germany like, OK, Germany couldn't be saved, according to everybody, actually. And then he did it, which is like technically a miracle by all standards. It's like, oh, well, kind of performed a miracle. And then they followed him wherever he went. Well, like he performed a miracle. I, I get it. Right. But when you have this sort of pithy, you know, insufficient definition, the, the alternative to emergence is nothing. Right. Nothing happens. And so now it's like, well, there's no there's no bad. There's no evil or the evil is such a, you know, such a such a weird bar that you're just never going to run into it again. Uh, you're not likely to. And then. Something comes up, right? something emerges because things emerge like things emerge all the time. And then it's like, well, that must be good because before we were bored, before nothing was happening and, and there's no bad. So emergence is good. 
Uh, fair enough, but, but that's very binary thinking, right? It's the Sam Harris, we can find the lowest possible evil or the worst possible evil, which by the way, you can't do. I don't know why Sam says that, that's a lie. I, I can prove to you that it's not true. Uh, and then we can just go in the opposite direction. It's like, what? Like, I mean, what are you saying? As long as you're not committing genocide, you're doing good in the world? Like, I don't, like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You have to move towards the good. You can't just say, I'm moving away from the bad. That, are you moving sideways? Are you, you know, are you moving up and then back down? Because I doubt it's linear. Like, they're not accounting for all these things. So emergence is good is like, oh, look at all the good things that that emerge and you can cast anything as emergence. But a lot of things are not emergence. A lot of things are actually happening as the result of actions in the world and they're being formed by people. Like emergence happens like literally all the time. Like there's new Discord servers popping up. There's new online platforms popping up and almost all of them fail, by the way. Like lit, like new businesses, 95% out of business in the first like three years. Like emergence is not good. It's not good to start a business and then have it fail. Like, you know, it might be good to start a business, but it's not good if it fails. Like, you know, so you, you get stuck in this loop of, well, it's better than nothing because emergence and therefore it must be good because what option do we have? But a lot of bad stuff emerges too and, and people don't pay any attention to that. Well, I mean, that that ties right into the whole idea of evolution by na natural selection, because <clears throat> there has to be a lot of stuff that's emerging in order for some things to be selected out so that they <clears throat> become the next level. And then out of that, there has to be a lot of stuff emerging so that, that something is to be selected out. So that means that a lot of things fail. Only a few things right. that emerge get selected to go to the next level, whatever that is. Um, I have so many questions about evolution. I wish I could have a conversation, a really honest conversation sometime with an evolutionist and with a, with a diehard creationist, have them both there and, and just pick their brains. Because when I, I mean, I said once early on in the channel that I, after listening to Jordan Peterson for a long time, I can understand his perspective on evolution and I can see that it's coherent and it all yeah, hangs yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. But I can also see that creation, special creation is coherent and that it all hangs together right. and that all of the language that Jordan Peterson uses could easily be simply inverted and become the explanation of how something is created and why it is the way it is. You can right. look at something that is the way it is and you can marvel at the beautiful design of it. Or you can say, wow, evolution is such a great designer. So you have that choice. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, except except you're treating evolution as an agent in the world. And well, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the problem, and then that's right? the language that they use. But the re then, yeah. they, then their argument is, well, there's no other language that we can use, but that's not really right. what we mean. Right. right. But, they, but yeah. they don't they can't say what they mean because they mean exactly what they say and they just don't want to admit it. And it's interesting, too, that they use the word selection. It's mm -hmm. like, OK, well, that that implies that there's something doing a selection. All right. And it's also ironic. Too, Even that, deeper, that, there's there's there must be something that is better than something else. So there has to right. be a value scale in order for there's, selection to take place, right? There's still a value scale. There's yeah. still a hierarchy. That's all. I, those things have to be there for the evolutionary process to, to be a process that is discernible from a non-process. 
But let but me ask you a question about evolution. You probably know the answer to this because it's probably very simple and I just can't see my way through it. You know, I look at a, a butterfly or I look at a ladybug or I look at a, a dog. And if they have come about strictly by evolution and natural selection, there are these branches on the tree and they're sort of at the end of the branch and there's no place to go or or they're just going to get more and more particularized. But so so where is evolution heading from here? I, I mean, right. Well, that's what we those, can't know. Those things are never going to become something else that's eventually going to become sentient being or or they human might. or something. They might. There's nothing in evolution that says they can't. I mean, that's the that's the problem. I mean, to some extent, you you can ask the 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 somewhat absurd but valid question: How smart were the dinosaurs? Because they were physically restricted from making buildings, but does that mean that they were mentally restricted from making buildings? And of course, you know, the Bible has an answer to that. That's pretty easy and straightforward. Well, but I mean, that's the evolutionists the, don't have an answer to that. So many of the sci-fi movies are asking that question in a way because yeah. they make these uh, beings from other planets that come in their octopuses or something, right. and they've made their ships in order to fly with the tentacles of an octopus. I mean, to yep. me, that's just like so. So stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, but the but the, I think the problem that people run into, especially with evolution, and they don't really understand this, you know, there's those cognitive biases, and one of the cognitive biases is sample bias, where you you know you're looking at a small sample or, or a specific sample that you've already filtered without realizing. It. That happens all the time. Everybody does. It doesn't matter what your IQ is, by the way. Cognitive biases happen equally to everybody, irrespective of IQ. Could you this give an example well of one of those things? One of those biases. Yeah, sure. So, so actually, I'll give you the, I'll give you I'll give you a personal a personal story. So, I used to work at a uh, at a company that made a product that was very popular product at the time, and I worked in tech support. That's what I, I worked in tech. People called us when they had a problem, they needed an RMA, or they just had a question. So, a lot of people just had questions. Like, fair enough. But the majority of our work was stepping them through how it worked. Right? What you could argue well. Instructions must be bad if you have to tell people how it works, right? Maybe, or maybe they lost them, or maybe the instructions can't be made universal enough that anybody can understand them. That's mm -hmm. that's a possibility, right? Because I've never met anything universal that everybody could understand it. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> that that could be, right? But also a huge number of, of, of you know, product comes through and we have, it's dead. It's dead. They get it in the box and it's dead. And one day, and I was very young at the time, I was complaining and one of the senior engineers was like, what are you complaining about? And I'm like, look at all these dead drives. How are these people making any money? This is ridiculous. We, and we had this nice RMA system where we'd send you a drive and hope you'd send one back. I mean, it was a very generous system. And some people took advantage of it, but a very small number. Um, but I was like, look at all these dead drives. And he's like, let me ask you a question. And I said, sure, go right ahead. And he said, how many dead drives do you think we get in a month? And I knew the number, so I threw it out. I don't remember what it is now, but you know, it was a big number. It was like, you know, 10,000 or something. It's a huge number. And he said, How many drives do you think we ship in a month? And I had no idea what the number was, but it was effectively what it what it boiled down to is that our uh dead drive rate uh for repair drive was under one percent. 
mm-hmm. which in the computer industry, I think probably even today, although I don't know for sure, is phenomenal. Like nobody's under one, nobody. So we just literally had the best product in its category at a, from any vendor. It was such high quality. But if you're in tech support, you don't see all the yeah. ones that work. You yeah. don't see, you're, you're in tech support. You're, you're dealing with the broken stuff. That's what you're doing. So your sample for people's experience is broken. It's just broken drives, unclear instructions, difficult to use, right? When in fact, and, and it did, it was like the number one product for years. For years, it was the number one product in its space because it's, it was fantastic. These Japanese companies really know how to make good tech. Um, it was fantastic hardware, it was very high quality hardware. So that's an example of sample bias. I'm a tech support engineer. All the good stuff is not visible to me. And then the other bias uh, uh, that's common is hindsight bias, where you're you're looking backwards through time and you're not realizing, well, the information that you have now is more than the information that was available when the things were happening. And so it's very easy for us to, to project a through line. The problem with all, and, and this is the real, this is the real killer, okay? Usually these are cognitive biases and you can do something to your cognition to get around them. That's actually not true with evolution. All of evolution is based based on those two biases because most of the creatures that that like were tried, most of the mutations that died out, we don't have fossils for. And even the ones that we do, we wouldn't know that because just we have one fossil that looks a certain way doesn't mean there weren't you know millions and millions of them and only one got fossilized. We have no idea. Of, we have no way to know that. We have no idea. And so all of evolution is subject to these two very powerful biases. We're looking back on it and the sample that we have is terrible. And we're making assumptions about, well, that, you know, this must be right, right? But, but again, how smart were the dinosaurs? Could they have built cities if they had arms and legs like us? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I don't, I don't know how you determine such a thing. I think that if you think you could determine that, I would call you an, an insane person right away. I'm like, I, they had huge brains. I, you know, what did, we don't know what their brains look like. Brains don't, as far as I know, get preserved at all. So there's no way to know at all. There's no way to have a guess about how smart dinosaurs were and whether or not they could have built spaceships, but for longer arms on the T-Rex. <laughs> no idea. Well, and the other thing that I think is um, very strange idea is how many creatures that don't seem to have a brain at all are capable of amazing feats of building right look at a look at a spider web they not only produce their own webbing but i i was listening to a video the other day when when a spider builds there are different kinds of web building processes and some of the spiders actually leave one wedge of the web without any crisscrosses in it so that they can, because they're the kind of spider that sits on the outside and waits until something gets trapped in the middle. And then they can zoom down this non-sticky part that they've left open to get to the thing that they want. So they everything else is sticky to capture the prey, but they've left themselves a non-sticky space to get to their prey after it gets caught. Well, hello. I mean, that is... That's some pretty good building for that tiny, tiny little brain or a beaver building a dam. Their dams are so incredibly, incredibly efficient and 
uh, beautiful and purposeful. And, uh, and not only does it make a great dam for a beaver, but often it's very beneficial to the environment and right. to the people living in the area. And just how does all that happen, you know? Right. Or like with a caterpillar, it just wanders around eating a lot of stuff and then it dissolves into a goo once it gets inside the chrysalis and there's nothing left of the caterpillar. Nothing left. There's no brain or anything left. And yet the memories that of something that was taught to that caterpillar will still be in the butterfly when the butterfly emerges from the chrysalis. Yeah. Yeah. No, Those they things, don't know how I just any of that don't works. think that evolution can touch that stuff because those are built into those creatures right no it it can't touch it and 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 you know the ultimate amusement to me is that everybody complains about the creationists and the intelligent design theories right and then science actually in all seriousness comes up with this whole idea of simulation theory and i'm just like okay but you couldn't get a better definition of intelligent design than simulation. There, there isn't a more pure form of intelligent design than simulation theory. And you're worried about the people reading the book that's 2000 years old. That's mm-hmm. that's what you're worried about? Really? I think you'd be worried about the new scientists who came to the conclusion that there's actually an architect on a computer programming it and running our entire universe from it. That sounds a little crazy to me, guys. I'm sorry, but yeah, I, you know, maybe you need some medication. Uh, maybe you took too much medication. Something's going on there because that just sounds. Well, and that that, that also leaves out the whole idea that whoever this architect is, if it's a human guy sitting behind a computer console, then <laughs> where did he come from? And then right. whoever, you no, know, no, it doesn't. Right, it, it doesn't solve the problem. regression. It doesn't solve right. the problem. Right. And, um, right. Something else just popped into my head um, and then popped right back out again, but maybe it'll come back. Sorry. That, that <laughs> happens. Well, the number yeah. of people I talk to, I mean, I've gotten in these arguments with, these, you know, mostly young kids and some of them are software engineers. Like they know how to program and whatnot. And they're like, no, no, no. See, you can simulate the game of life, which is a famous, it's just like mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah, that I, I, I know. Yeah. You can simulate the game of life inside the game of life. And I said, yeah, I understand that. But every time you run a simulation of something, it's like making a photocopy and it degrades. And they're like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, look, you've got a simulator, okay? And then if you have a computer, it has so much memory and so much horsepower on the CPU. When you run the first simulation to simulate the game of life, you've used up those which are gone. Those which are no longer available to you and you can't see them from the simulation. And, And then when you use the game of life that you've that's running in the simulator and you create a simulation of the game of life you've shrunk that usually by two or three orders of magnitude i forget what it is i used to know off the top of my head um but like it's a lot smaller and then finally one of them went you're right and i'm like yeah it never gets bigger it only gets smaller and it only gets worse and it only gets more constrained it doesn't get better that's the reciprocal narrowing that john bravicki talks about like yeah when you're stuck in emergence you're stuck with reciprocal narrowing. You're stuck with everything getting worse because you're relying on this thing that emerged up and then you're trying to get inside of it, but that's a smaller world than the one you just left and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's not like that's going to break out and 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 break away from the demiurge and get into the bigger Well, that, what you God. just said reminded me of what, what I thought of a second ago, and that is Dr. Levin's, um, Michael Levin's work that he's doing on xenobots where um, 
he has taken the cells from a, uh, the skin of a frog and put those skin cells into a Petri dish in a certain kind of medium or something, not maybe not a Petri dish, but anyway, some sort of medium. And they will uh, spontaneously gather together, cluster together and make little bots. They, they, they don't have any, they're only skin cells. So there's no neuron brain cells or anything like that. It's just skin cells, but they'll cluster together and they will repurpose some of the functions of the skin cell to something else. Like, I guess there's some little cilia on the skin cells and that they will repurpose those on the exterior of the bot so that they have motility so they can move through the water. And then when there are a number of them, they will go out and gather up the loose skin cells that are still in the water and kind of clump them together so that they have sort of made offspring for themselves. You can use this language. But what's interesting, so these things can live and they can Mm -hmm. reproduce in a sense by making these new little things. Um, but, but they can't reproduce, you know, by dividing and then becoming a new thing. They don't have that right. kind of life, but they are alive They're They, they take in uh, nutrition Nutrients, and they ex yeah. excrete waste and all of that. And, um, but they're exactly the same DNA as the frog. Yep. The DNA has not changed, but nevertheless, they are a new creature that has never existed before. And it right. all happens within 48 hours. It doesn't take a hundred thousand years of evolution to produce this thing. It happens in 48 right. hours. And right. I don't know if he has considered the implication of that. He makes a deal no. about it, but I don't know that he under, he considers the implication of the fact that it doesn't require hundreds of thousands of years to create something new, even, even in a well, situation like but, that. But that's the assumption that evolution is the only force and it's clearly not. And this is, you know, this is another thing they leave out, right? It's not just evolution, right? There's also adaptation and mm -hmm. adaptation happens actually fully independent of evolutionary processes. Now you can play with that and people do they go, Oh no, that's adaptation is part of evolution. No, it's actually not. It came around a lot later. Um, and, and it is a separate concept from the other sets of changes because in an evolutionary theory set, because it's actually a set of theories, it's not all theory or anything like that. There's a bunch of theories, right? What Darwin did was he added his own stuff for sure, not taking anything away from Darwin, but he took, and synthesized a bunch of theories. And then he added his own stuff to clue them together. And like, fair enough, it's a wonderful accomplishment. But it's not like he came up with all that. A lot of the stuff was already known, right? Mm -hmm. And it just didn't fit together. So he fit it together and turned it into a single science, if you want to think of it that way. I think that's a perfectly fair way to think about it. But the problem is that in evolution, there's lots of mechanisms for change. So. And, and this is one thing that Peterson actually kind of talks about, but I don't think he, he understands what he, you know, I don't think he understands the gravity of what he's actually saying. So one of the ways, it, you know, that people typically uh, think about this is mutation. So there's mutation that happens from cosmic rays. I mean, we can get all crazy about where cosmic mm -hmm. rays come from, but I, yeah, that's a pointless regress back to nothingness. Uh, there's the Gnosticism, right? So there's, there's always mutation. And then there's, there's something that isn't that because it's not external cause from cosmic rays that happens as a result of mating. Even asexual reproduction, where some variation happens as the result of the joining of two sets, 
That's a different type of variation from mutation. It's a different mechanism entirely. You have nothing in common. They can work together. They, they, I mean, they can happen together, obviously, right? But that's a different statement, right? So, so those are those, and those two are separate from adaptation, because adaptation is like your. So, uh, uh, a good way to uh, think about adaptation is in karate. A lot of people you know, understand this, there's practices you can do, like you, you you hit your bones on a regular basis and your bones get stronger as a result. I know Verveke talks about this. A lot of people talk about this, okay? When you do that, okay, because you've changed what's called the epigenome, which is still relatively new and not understood yeah. at all because it, it just turns out that DNA is actually less than a third of the picture by all the numbers I've ever looked at. I don't know where mm -hmm. anybody else is getting their numbers from, but it looks like it only... It only does a third of, of, of the prediction rate. Um, the epigenome will pass on those stronger bones and that ability so that your offspring uh, will have an easier time to do that or, or may even have that modified bone structure already. That's adaptation. That's not mutation. It's not either of the other types of mutations. Totally different process that, again, they have overlap, but they're not dependent on one another. They're completely independent. And it's this... The, the problem for these scientists is that in order to do proper science, actual science with the scientific method, you really have to reduce the variables down to one and only alter one variable at a time. You can't do that with evolution because A, the scale is beyond your lifetime automatically. And B, there's just too many variables. We don't even know them all is my suspicion. I can't prove that. Obviously, I can't prove an unknown, uh, but I don't think we even understand them all, right? We've got We've got genetics, which is the DNA. We've got the epigenome, which is something else, which turns these on and off and also does something else that we don't know about. And then you've got the uh, mRNA, the messenger RNA system. And we don't really know anything about how that works. Like we know almost nothing. We know what it does, but we, we, you know, we can't make changes to it with any uh, reliability. Uh, and that's, and that's a real, it's a real problem. They, they've been working with uh, messenger RNA for like 10 plus years in a serious fashion in, in controlled environments. And they've gotten nothing, nothing consistent for results at all. So that's, and, and that's just the three mechanisms that we know about. So you can't look at the epigenome and know whether or not something's been turned on or off. It only gives you an indication because if the messenger RNA didn't send the message, it didn't get turned off. So the, like there's three variables right there in the genetic system that we know about for sure. Right, that that maybe combined explain the whole thing. I don't think so, though. I, I think the math is still way off. Um, but I'm not a math guy, so I'm bothered to even think about calculating it. Um, in the same way, the math was way off. You know, they they knew this midway through the 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 human genome project. They figured out this isn't going to explain the things we thought it was going to explain. The math doesn't work. There's too many combinations in the human to be explained by this genome, as complex as it is, and as many computers as we have on this. And, you know, the only reason why I know that is because I know somebody who worked on the project and I met them. I was walking by them on the street and I had worked with them. And I said, hey, what are you working on? And he said, I'm working at the Whitehead Institute on the Human Genome Project. And we just figured out that we're almost halfway done. And this isn't going to this isn't going to give us the answers we we got all this funding for to get. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a problem. And he said, well, it's already funded. So, you know, I'm getting my paycheck, but um, we're not going to get our answers. Like we're not getting what we paid for. And I was like, well, that's too bad. Um, good for MIT and the Whitehead Institute, I guess. 
um, bad for everybody else who's not going to get their answers. And, and then they find the epigenome, right? And they find this messenger RNA to find all this other stuff. So, you know, it, it's not, these sciences rely on these single variable equations. And like, we live in a multivariable world, like everything's called multivariate, right? Everything's multivariate. It's not univariate. And only certain things can be reduced to a single like equation. And most of those things aren't life forms. They seem to be physical objects with no uh, agency or no ability to be an agent in the world, right? So they're totally reliant on gravity or the wind or sunlight or something, right? The expansion of heat, the contraction of cold, uh, if they move at all. Uh, those things seem to be reducible to, to, to univariate components. But I, I, I haven't seen anything in, in the life sciences that looks like it's going to get there. And, and that's the problem. There's deep confusion about what science can and can't do. And then there's the, the whole mess of what used to be called junk DNA, which at one point they used to say something like 85% or something of DNA was just junk, which was supposed to be proof for evolution, showing that we have all this garbage left in our systems. But little by little, they're finding out, oh, wait, this piece isn't junk. It's very important. And it does this thing over here. Oh, this piece over here is not, you know, and so... So more and more of the junk DNA is they're finding out is really special. And it makes me think of this company my husband used to work for that sold uh, chips and um, I mean, manufactured chips, designed chips, manufactured them. And my husband was in marketing and they would sell uh, a chip that had massive functionality, but they sold it to different customers with some of the functionality turned off that couldn't be turned on by the customer, but it was all, the chip was all the same, but some people paid at this level. Some people paid at a higher level. Some people paid at a much higher level because they got more functionality. It was the same chip. Some of it was just turned off for some reason. Right. 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 And, uh, and I think that's maybe some of the junk DNA can't even be seen because we're not customers at the right level. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. Or because our minds aren't open to, you know, maybe maybe a customer at the lower level, if they were smart enough, they could figure out a way to turn on the part that's turned off, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and people don't know this. Like they, they you know, they just like, oh, science does all this great stuff. It's like, well, science is overbuilt quite a bit, quite a bit, you know, by, by like several orders of magnitude about what it can and can't do and what it does and doesn't know. And, and what things are explained and which things are not at all explained. And, and yeah, the whole idea that you as a life form limited to the lifespan that we have, or even, well, triple the lifespan, it doesn't matter, can see something about evolution in real time is absurd. Evolution doesn't unfold on that scale, on that time scale at all. You know, much less what, when you're talking about evolution, it, it doesn't actually make any sense to talk about the evolution of a thing of, a, of a, you know, of dogs or of people. It doesn't make any sense because uh, evolution isn't that small. It's a huge, huge thing that involves all the creatures, all of them, <laughs> like, uh, like actually all of them, all the insects, all the bacterium, all the, all the viri, you know, all the, about all the trees muscles, and flowers and all the trees, all the and, flowers, and, you right. know, grains and, and nuts yeah. and seeds and roots and, you know, all of that stuff, all the pieces to all of those things. Right. And, and so, you know, it's, it's absurd to think that your, your limited mind, cause you know, you're, you're just a, a limited person with a limited lifespan. 
could, could even if it were capable of understanding all that, would have the time to understand it because it takes time to learn these things. Well, even as wonderful, I mean, many scientists are really wonderful, doing wonderful work, but they're they're over there in their little piece of the world working on that, and they can't see the whole picture, right? Right, right, yeah, and 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 yeah, it's a big it's a big problem. It it, it really is. It's such a it's such a huge a huge problem. And uh, it's just funny because, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't understand why, why they're so uh, stuck on, on, you know, things like extending rationality where it would fix a problem that isn't a problem, never needed to be fixed before. And like, what are you doing? Why do you need to know these things? Because okay, say more about that. Now, what do you, what do you mean when you say they talk about extending rationality? <clears throat> Well, that's one of John Verveke's projects is to extend rationality. He's not the only one, but I mean, he talks about it quite a bit, extend rationality, um, because rationality gives you uh, a level of certainty, right? Because science, the, the advantage of science, and science is wonderful, and I love science to death. I have computers, so obviously, uh, like it's all science, guys. Um, science gives you uh, two, two main factors, right? Which is accuracy and precision, and that increases certainty. Right. It gives you a level of certainty that you can you know, often measure. Right. Uh, and, and it can approach 100 percent for a lot of things. Like that's what science is really good for. Uh, so to the extent that you can apply science on something, it will give you a degree of certainty about the world. Now, if you mix that up, uh, and I think people do with something like rationality, then you say, oh, well, we can't apply rationality to love. Love is irrational. Everybody knows this. Right. Like a, any definition of love is irrational. Like we know emotions are definitionally erratic. They are things which are irrational. The components of things that happen that don't fit rationality, logic, and reason. So there's obviously things that don't fit in those three camps. So everyone's like, well, we want, we want to extend rationality so that we have certainty about the things that rationality doesn't apply to. I oh, get it. You mean like but, some sort of systematic theology or systematic philosophy that would that would take apart? <laughs> love and goodness and beauty and truth and make them fit into some sort of systematic right. picture. Well, I mean, if you had the forbidden a knowledge, huge temptation, Karen, I understand the temptation. If you had the forbidden knowledge, Karen, you could do that. I'm sure. Like, what does that <laughs> sound like? It sounds like Gnosticism. It's just crazy talk, right? It's nuts. It's it's like, what? what? And the, the, the funny part is you don't need it. Why do you need this? Why, what is compelling you to believe? that this is something that you have to understand or have knowledge of, or I, I don't even know like, where, why, why, why? If the ancient peoples who you think were all stupid or something were, didn't have this and they lived and they lived fine and happy, why do you need it? I'm just confused. Like, I, I don't get I think it. It's, I think it's Corinthians. Um, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So knowledge is very captivating because oh, yeah, the sure. more of knowledge we acquire, the more we we grow in our own eyes, right? We puff when up. it gives us the impression of being able to do things that maybe we can't do, or like I said, don't need to do, or or you know whatever. Like there's a, a dozen different ways you could sort of think about that, and and like fair enough, like it gives us a lot of confidence in things that you know maybe we don't need maybe we don't need like at all <laughs> maybe we don't just don't need these things and and like you know that that's fine except also you don't need those things 
So why are you wasting Well, I'm time? fascinated by your little comment about the two kinds of measurements are accuracy and precision. Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting because, you know, um, let me see if my notes here. So I was talking about Matthew Peugeot's frame that heaven informs and earth expresses. Mm -hmm. So heaven, heaven brings down the idea and then earth maybe activates the idea or something like that so that the idea comes down and then it arises from below, gets right. expressed, gets manifest from below. And then Barfield's frame is accuracy versus expression. And that frame, I think, answers a lot of questions. There's a lot, a lot of rationality and logic and everything goes into that accuracy side, right? And expression goes into love and goodness and truth and beauty and art and all of those kinds of things come out of that emotion, come out of the expression side. And in order to have a, a whole of some kind, there has to be some sort of gradation of each and intersection of each and and that's what creates all the variety and the diversity and you know and all the all of that kind of stuff so so both are needed um but you've added another element in talking about over on the accuracy side it's not just accuracy accuracy and precision are two different kinds of things so yes i'd like you to talk more about how you parse those two because i think that that on one side and expression on the other side makes a more complete picture and i'd like to understand it more sure so uh the 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 accuracy and precision problem is you can fire an arrow and get it close to the bullseye right and then you can fire six arrows and either get them spread out from the bullseye or get them all close together and it may not be on the bullseye and so that's the right. That's why you need accuracy and precision. You need them both. You need not just to be accurate, but also to be precise, so that you know when you and and yeah, obviously this only comes into play when when there's more than one item. But this is often the case with science. They reduce everything to one case. Well, what's the and difference? And they generalize so, out. If both of them are aiming for the target, what's the difference between? No, they're not. They're not aiming for the target. No, no, no. One, okay. one is one is about the target, and the other is about how close you, how consistent you are in your, in your, uh, in your attempt. Right. And so, so that's so accuracy would be aiming for the target. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I always get them. I'm dyslexic. So I always get, whenever there's a binary, I get confused. Uh, I think, it, I think accuracy is, is target and precision is how close you are, uh, how clumped together things are. Okay. And, and that's part of the problem is that you need both when you're firing multiple arrows. Like it's not good to just have one, right? Like if you hit the mm -hmm. bullseye once, that's great. But if you only hit it once and you don't even hit the, the target at all, that's not great, right? Whereas if you, if, you, if you fire six arrows and they're all on the outside of the target, you'll outscore the bullseye. So like the, the, it actually does matter. Like it's not an arbitrary thing. It actually does matter. Um, you know, and it gives you that sense for three states, right? There's missing entirely, there's getting close, and then there's getting dead on, right? And it's, oh, okay, because it, it, it re-enchants the world. Part of the problem is we're stuck with this with these binaries. Like either you either you believe in you know some you know big religion 
or you know you're an atheist it's like well no there's lots of options in between and gnosticism seems to be most of them um right uh, you know or, or either you vote for this party or that party if you vote for this party you have to believe this on this issue it's like what what <laughs> you can't understand the world like that that's never going to work right and so you, you we get stuck in these binaries because because it, it looks to us like and this is one of the problems like we examine our own thinking right as though that's a thing that you can do you're you're stuck inside your head. You're not examining your own thinking. I, I hate to. You might be able to see the limits of some of your thinking. Sure, you might be able to come up with interesting sounding stories in your head about how you're thinking, but they're probably wrong. And any reflection will probably show you that, but it's just never been reflected back from somebody else. And so we we think that we make binary decisions all the time. And uh, my contention, and I I'm not sure that I can prove this, but I but I think actually it's been proven, but I I don't know. Uh, is that you you never make a binary decision. It never happens. It never happens. Uh, what you do is you choose something to the exclusion of many other things. That's what you seem to do, right? Because you can say, look, I decided to, instead of playing video games, go to the store. Fair enough. But what are all the other things that aren't video games and going to the store that you also didn't do? Because mm -hmm. really, that was the decision. The decision wasn't, right? Or the decision was to go to the store. So what, but what you've done in your thought process is you filtered everything out and prioritized it. And what you're looking at is you're ignoring that whole part. You're ignoring the starting of the decision process. Again, you're not looking at the beginning. You're not looking at creation. You're looking at, at the middle and going, okay, well, I have these two things that are prioritized at near the top. And, and I don't know which one's number one and number two. So I'm going to pick between one and two and ignore three, four, five, six, seven, however many. And and that that ignoring part ignoring part has already been done, for the most part. And so you you narrow things down to two, and then it looks like you're thinking about binary all the time. But that's you're not. You're clearly not. It's clearly it's clear that you couldn't possibly be doing such a silly thing. And so people get confused because it looks in their head like that's what's happening, even though that it's absurd to think that that's what's happening. Because every time before you make a choice, you're faced with a incomparable number of choices you know you know irreducible complexity right. around you everywhere and one of the things that popped into my head when you were talking about that is when i think about painting every stroke that you put on the canvas is a choice of this and not that not necessarily right. binary i mean in my head sometimes i have 250 million options that that yeah. i could pick up a brush of any number of things and I could place it in any number of places on the canvas for any number of purposes. Um, but it's always this and not that. And, and that made me think back to Lindsay's video where almost the entire frame of the whole video was complaining about the, the Gnostics and the, the, the anti-reason people even the reason people, I mean, he tied everything together, but, but all of them were in this category of, they don't really know what they want, but they know not that. So they're only yes. on the not that side, right? There's no this, it's right. all not that. But right. in reality, every time you make a choice, any movement that you make forward requires this and not that. Yes. You got to have both. And, and right. maybe, maybe right. that's the accuracy versus expression thing too, because the accuracy yeah. is you're, you're moving towards a goal of some kind. And then, you know, that movement 
would either be accuracy or precision, either right on target or in the neighborhood. When Peterson talks about how you aim for the highest good, that highest good is kind of always moving in your frame because you, you don't get to it right away. And then maybe the target has moved and you have to cal recalibrate and, and move again. So you're getting some precision there, but maybe you're not totally accurate yet, but even precision moves you along the path of an upward trajectory. Right. Yeah. And I think the thing that people, you know, aren't accounting for, I would say that science is a quantity based uh, way of looking at the world. Right. And because it's about accuracy and precision, it's about testing, it's about measurement, all those things. Right. And and um, there's a quality to the world that isn't you can't measure quality. Right. I, I mean, that doesn't mean there isn't a difference in it. It means it's not measurable. Uh, and measurement, if you look into gauge theory at all, you'll realize measurement's not what you think, and it's kind of a big problem. Uh, and, and once you realize that, you'll be terrified. If you've been relying on science or if you're stuck in materialism, the gauge theory and the way it works will terrify you for sure um, because it's all completely relativistic because it turns out. So measurement is already a problem, but, but quality is a, is, a, is a similar problem, right, in that you don't even have measurement. But it's purely subjective, right? The, the quality of the beauty of the, um, you know, what, what I would what I would call terrible drawings that I do on my board. It some people are going to say, no, it's lovely that you're trying so hard to draw, even though you're clearly drawing impaired or something. <laughs> if we want to be generous about it, um, so so, you know, you 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 know, it's it's it. You can qualities are all over the place probably an infinite quality to everything, right? It's it's not, and it's not measurable and it's not relevant that it's not measurable. And you know, what's the, what's the beauty of a painting like versus another painting? It's like, I don't know. Um, there's no way to, to, to make that sort of into a scientific project. You can't use logic, reason, and rationality on I mean, This is why Aristotle has four causes and not two. And people seem to be using one that's really two of them wrapped together or something. It's it's very strange. It's like they're they're taking material cause and formal cause and putting them together and saying, this is how everything works. And that looks like emergence. And it's like, I, you know, there's that final cause thing, guys. And efficient cause is still out there too. But you at least need final cause, formal cause, and material cause. Like you can't. Well, I, don't I think mean, how can they wrap how can they wrap formal cause in there relative to emergence? Because The only way I could put those two together is if I think of a painting emerging under my hands, which mm -hmm. in some sense it does, but it's only emerging in the process of something that started as an idea in my head and then gets brought into being through my hands and through a lot of um, natural resources in paint and canvas and brushes and all that kind of thing. And then something emerges on the camp canvas. Yes. So but the formal cause is the form that was in my head before the before the thing started. So if you're going to attribute emergence to formal cause, then you you've got an agent that is being that is good. The, the implication is there. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think that I think the problem is they do collapse the causes. Right. Because they're materialists and they think that material is the primary mover of the world. And like these are the people that say, well, you know, if if uh, if Twitter wrote their software differently, people wouldn't use it the way they use it. 
And that's like so apparently and obviously observably false that it's hard to imagine that people are still on that, but they, yet they insist um, that that's the case. It's, it's absurd. Um, uh, we, we, and we know it's not true. Like we know like Twitter had competitors, they all went out of business. Twitter had competitors that were bigger than Twitter at one time. They all went out of business, right? They all went out of business because you can't use Twitter to do the things that people are doing on Twitter. They won't, they won't use it. Like it, it's, it's, it's still a negotiation. You can't, you mm -hmm. can't force people into doing things, right? You can't force them to wear masks. You can't force them to go to school. You can't force them to, uh, you can't force them to sell, the, sell your, their property, right? You can't force them to trade with you. You, you. you can't force them to be a good conversationalist, right? You can't force them to play by your rules. You can't, like, you can't. It's just not possible. And, and, well, and, and Peterson and, talks about this with the chips. Whether it's Twitter or any other product on the market, we get the market we want. We get the product we want always. Right, right. Um, I used to do consulting work, and one of the companies that I consulted for was Procter and Gamble, and one of their products was Pampers diapers. And we would go to the the Pampers factory in uh, over there in the. Central Valley in California, someplace, I can't remember the name of the town, great big factory. The the machine was half a mile long that made these diapers. I mean, really, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but really long because there's a lot of steps in the process because they have to have the plastic sheet on the outside. And then there's a thing that crimps it so that it's pleated in such a way that it fits so perfectly on the baby and, and the plastic sheet has tabs and then they've got Velcro. And then, then there's this, uh, thin stuff that gets filled with a gel that's absorbent. And then that's got to be shaped in a certain way. And that gets laid on top of the, you know, all these things. Well, when I had my first child, it was cloth diapers. That's all you had. That was your choice. And then they came up with about mid, my daughter's like maybe two, three months old, the first disposable diapers come on the market and they're just, a couple of pieces of paper with some wadding in between some cotton wadding or something. And you had to pin them on just like you pin on a normal diaper, but you could throw them out afterwards because they were just made out of paper. You can imagine two paper towels with some extra padding in between. <laughs> that was it, right? Stuff would leak out the sides, all that kind of stuff. But that's probably what we would have got stuck with. But Pampers also was doing business in Japan. And the Japanese customers just wouldn't buy that junk. They just wouldn't pay for it. They said, no. So the marketing guys had to talk to them. What do you want? What do you need? And over time, the product got adjusted to the needs of the consumer. And then when they'd get a better product, they'd go back to them and they'd say, you know, what else is missing? Oh, we want this. We want that, right? Well, Twitter's like that. It accommodates to the needs of the users and it gets built out to fit the users that are using it. Or if they're going to be successful, that's what's going to happen. Right. So whatever we've ended up with in Twitter, it's because of us. We right. get the leadership that we deserve. Yeah. Because we're yeah. the ones who are building it in essence, because they're responding to us. It's like when Jordan Peterson talks about how the crowds all loved Hitler because he was listening to the crowd and seeing what it was that they wanted. And then he was responding with what he could tell that they wanted. Right. And then he would give them more of that. And then they would love him the more. And then he would give them more of what they loved. And it just ratchets up until both of you are in this absolute hell that you've produced for yourselves. 
out of not listening to something higher. Right, exactly. Well, that's the that's the emergence, right? You just described emergence. What emerged in in Germany in the in the depths of despair and I like I mean, read the history of Weimar Germany. You know, after the I mean, the French were yep. just it, the French basically stole the Germans' food supply. Actually, like actually, like Woodrow Wilson, who started the League of Nations, which later became the UN. Uh, he quit the League of Nations and he was a crazy idealist. I don't, I yeah. never liked him, but he was a yeah. nutty, crazy idealist. Yeah. And everything, you know, you, you, you know, you, you think your ideas are new, huh? Go read about Woodrow Wilson and, and his utopic ideas. They're gonna, they're well, and gonna then go look at the changes, go and look at the changes to the Constitution instituted under that crazy idealism that have half destroyed America. Right. So, yeah. Right, right. Well, and, 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 and destroy Germany. And he was upset. He was upset. He was upset that he couldn't save his German friends. And he was upset at the at the political system in the United States that 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 he had already created to some extent or shaped uh, largely. Uh, and he was upset at at the League of Nations. Right. And he, he 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 was, you know, really upset that this didn't go the way he thought it should go based on his wicked smart idea. Uh, that 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 this is the way things should work, and and that's one of the problems, right? That's where the Gnosticism comes in. But also, you can see the hindsight bias. Like we look at things and we go, oh well, well those diapers are there because the company did that to people. It's like no, the diapers are. You didn't see the process. All you saw was the end result as it is today. You didn't see the beginnings. You don't understand the changes and how they happened. You know, even if you understand the changes, you don't understand how they happened. You may think some crazy CEO came by and just said, we're going to do this today. And look, that happens. It happened to Tropicana a few years ago, right? They changed their bottles completely. They changed all the artwork. They just did a marketing redesign and it was a disaster. The company lost a ton of money overnight because they, they were doing just dumb, like literally stupid things that any, any designer would know better than to do. Um, and, and they had to, they booted that CEO, got another one real quick. So the company didn't go out of business because, and all they did was change the, the way the bottles looked. And they almost put the whole company out of business. The product didn't change at all. Just the way the bottles looked changed. And people were so furious they wouldn't buy the product anymore. Even diehard Tropicana people. And I was like, yeah, that, that, this isn't surprising. But that's rare. Most of the time, it's this negotiation between, you know, and again, Peterson talks about this with the chimps. Yeah, tyrannical chimps happen. They just don't last. <laughs> they don't last because any two people can take one chimp out or any two chimps, I should say, can take one, one chimp out. Like anybody can take out a tyrant. Uh, you know, especially if you all have handguns, uh, which was banned in the Weimar Republic, by the way, which is why they tried well, to bomb Hitler and, and weren't succeeding. Go, going back to this um, idea about how we get what we ask for and we don't we don't go we don't understand the system because we don't go far enough back in history to look at where the changes started happening. I happen to understand fully the diaper thing because I've, I've lived through it. I also, I think I have a pretty good insight on this problems with our medical care system, because I remember before that there, before there was insurance, before there was Medicare, I remember. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, we have the healthcare system that we have built in this country because we have, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have allowed all these changes that have come in. Every one of them has been destructive. The HMO system, the Medicare system, not that we want people to fall through the cracks, but but the way that it was done, the way that all these things were were designed and implemented was damaging. And so we've ended up with this thing that's all cobbled together. And then when we start fixing it, we just 
tinker with the edges. We tinker with yeah. the symptoms. But right. nobody will go back and look at the beginning, look back through history and try to find out where the problem started and then try to fix it from there. Nobody. Right. Because no, they don't, they don't go back scary. to the starting point. Yeah. yeah, because it would be politically toxic or scary or whatever. So I don't see... I don't see how we ever get out of this thing that we've gotten ourselves into. Well, well, one thing is we have to ditch some of these ridiculous um, sorts of formulas that we that we have in our head. Like, you know, one of the things. Sorry to pick on John Verbicki, but like <laughs> this is a real bugaboo of mine. Well, you know, he John is a great guy, so he'll probably deal with. It. I, I love John. He'll be fine. I've met John. He's a lovely human. Um, Look, I mean, he says stuff like we can't go back. We can't go back. We can't. And I'm like, at what point at what point is it in your life that you haven't had to go back? I, I, I don't know. Like, I go back all the time. I go back and start over. I go right. You start like a novice. You learn again. Right. So at the same time, he's talking about play like a child. Isn't that going back? Like, I don't understand. Like, what do you, you know, we go back all the time. You have to go back and fix mistakes sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that requires knowing where things start. And you know, one of my bugaboos with Jonathan Peugeot, who I also met, is lovely, by the way, awesome, a little distracted, but a uh, lovely person. Um, he says, where are you standing? And it's like, no, no, no. The, I think the better question is, where are you starting? Where are you starting your argument? Because, and this is the limitation of logic, reason, and rationality is whatever frame you put them in, because they work within a frame and they don't work without a frame. There's no objective material reality, as I like to call it, that doesn't exist. So you need a frame. And but the problem is, if you pick the wrong frame, you can end up with justifying anything. You can justify genocide with logic. It's not that mm -hmm. hard. You can justify uh, nuclear weapons and blowing up the planet. I mean, nihilists do this all the time, right? You can justify uh, you're wiping out poor people, right? They're doing that all the time with the climate. It's perfectly logical if you buy into the climate. W whether you think it's true or not is not relevant. If if climate's the highest value and not persons, then killing persons is okay to save the, the climate, which is the highest. It's not that, it's not a trick. Like it's very simple. If you well, hold something up above persons, persons are gonna go. You're a lot younger than I am. So I'm wondering, do you remember back in the seventies and yeah, back in the seventies and early eighties, the whole move of, there were two two moves going on in education and in the in the world, magazine articles, everything. Values clarification and situational ethics. And what you just described is situational ethics. To a T, all the books that were written about situational right. ethics, but they weren't they weren't saying this is bad. They were saying this is yeah, the way yeah. to think. Yeah. And, the, well, and, and it had its impact on the culture that yeah. that love is an excuse for murder. Basically, they they didn't say that blatantly but they're saying there are times when killing it can be justified because of your love for it so so right. love can justify anything and and right. it's a very subtle very destructive and then the whole values clarification thing which they were using in the schools with the young people back in the late 70s and early 80s an example of that would be you tell the kids okay there's 26 kids here you are all you each have a role and they hand out the roles. You're a priest and you're a 78 year old. Uh, um, maybe you're a blacksmith and people don't need blacksmiths anymore. And, and you're a 14 year old teenager who loves technical stuff and everybody gets a role. 
and then there's a catastrophe and there's only one bomb shelter and it only has room for 19 people. So who's going to be in the bomb shelter? Or it only has room for 12 people. Who's going to, or, or, or you're on a ship and it's going down and there's only one life raft. Who gets on the life raft? And then the kids talk about it. Well, right. basically what you're doing is saying some lives have more value than other lives. Right. 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 This is yep. values clarification. Yeah. No, that's yeah. not values clarification. That's yeah. hateful, destructive, demonic, satanic, evil. That's what that is. Yeah. But that was yeah. all through the culture back in the late 70s and early 80s. And I don't know where it went. It probably went underground and became something else, secular humanism or, or, um, you know what? Whatever name another, you put on it, another Gnostic attempt to be more Gnostic. Yes. Well, and it's and it's a misunderstanding. I mean, situational ethics, if you properly understand it, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, is, is that ethics is not a a formula or a procedure that can be applied. Uh, you know, in other words, the framing matters, and we live in this postmodern world where we're ignoring the framing, and so we say ridiculous things like, you know, uh, look at this wonderful emergent system it, it emerged from a computer and a bunch of programming <laughs> that you did how emergent is that you played god creator you played creator to build a set of rules that looks cool and and can form unexpected things usually usually they use the little trick called the randomness like oh where, where did you get that from my friend uh so randomness roughly speaking, is actually just the mathematical way out of math. It's like, oh, we're, we're, we're going to pick a random starting point. Why would you have to pick a random starting point? Because math is dead. So if you pick the same starting point every time, you're going to get the same results. Now, this is tremendously helpful. Look, I'm a data scientist, among other things, and a software engineer. And when you're, when you're doing, say, symbolic regression or AI or something, there's a thing called the seed. And it's your random seed. And what you do is you test using a seed number. And usually you pick something random, maybe once, or, or you just pick like 98743 or whatever, and you feed that into your algorithm. And then you, you, you do your tests over and over again, right, to make sure things are consistent, right, because you need consistent and reliable, because you need consistent and reliable, right? And then when you're ready to use this in the real world, you modify that random number with a random number generator. And the reason why you do that is because otherwise you don't get different results anymore. Math is dead. Math is not alive. It's dead. All the constituents of math are dead, right? And so, well, how do you get these cool things? You add random numbers to them. But, but if you actually start with the same random number twice, and that happens, uh, it's, it's extremely rare on computers because they've got mathematical ways around this uh, problem, roughly speaking, like they use the clock or they use entropy or whatever. They use all kinds of crazy, crazy tricks. Um, but if you start with the same number, you, you, you can actually reproduce the conditions. And so what you have is dead because it, it can only do the one thing in the one way. And, and people don't understand that. Like in a simulation, if you set the conditions the same and just run it, you're going to get the same results every single time, every simulation. And the only way around that is by adding this randomness component. And there's lots of ways to do that, like I said, but you're, 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 pretending that something is alive and different um, by using a mathematical trick. And, and that trick is outside of mathematics, technically speaking, because randomness, you can't, you can't understand randomness using math. 
it's it is the way out it's the it's the the whole out of mathematics out, out of mathematical certainty well, that's the whole reason i fell in love with jordan peterson's book maps of meaning is chapter 4 on anomaly because as i was reading his analysis of anomaly and he he talks about it in on a variety of scales from the very small scale up to the very largest scale <clears throat> like anomalous happenings in history things like that i mean it's a fascinating chapter. But as I was reading the chapter, I was thinking about if I roll this back to evolution and I'm thinking about this initial cell that just crawled up out of the slime somehow, and it's the first cell and it's the only one, and it only has a certain amount of um, intellectual bandwidth, let's say, it only has a certain amount of DNA in it and, and only a certain amount of information in the DNA. Um, base pairs, certain number of base pairs. How do those base pairs increase over time? If I were going to come up with an evolutionary reason for them to increase over time, I would go back to this epigenetic idea that it's having to adapt to something. What it's adapting to is something new all the time. It has to be something, has to be an anomaly, has to be a series of anomalies, has to be a series of random events that are not what it is normally experiencing. It, it experiences this random event. It has to overcome it, live through it. And then it has increased its knowledge base and then it moves on. And, and I was uh, thinking about that. I was thinking that is an input and that's a gift. Yeah. And every time it's input, it's a gift. And every time it's right. input, it's a gift for a particular reason to right. produce a particular result. Because it yep. always the anomaly always suits the need. At least that's been my experience in my own life when I've experienced anomalies that have greatly ratcheted up my need to grow. That those anomalies have exactly suited the need that I had at that moment to grow. So an anomaly is very much like a random number generator. <laughs> They're yes. random, but even randomness is very mysterious, is it not? Yes. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it, it like I said, it's the hole in math. You can't you can't do anything about it. It's the it's the potential that opens everything up. It's the way you add potential to a mathematical. Isn't it system. also very difficult to actually get random numbers? Oh yeah, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's various algorithms, the sieve algorithms and stuff, all kinds of crazy stuff. Most people use entropy because it turns out that you know there's a slight variation in the number of milliseconds it takes to boot your computer. Uh, a lot of people, so there was a, a trend for a while. I don't know if it's still around. I don't think it is, but uh, I have used it uh, relatively recently. Move the mouse and that generates entropy, and it, which is hysterical because it absolutely does the opposite, but that's a different <laughs> problem. Uh, I'm just wrong definition of entropy, guys. Uh, but it generates, it helps to generate some of these seed numbers so that when you use an algorithm that isn't random, because the inputs are unpredictable, Right. They're not random, but they're just unpredictable because um, they're based on your mouse movement. That's not random. Uh, and th- it appears random. Like, fair enough. Like, it's it's Ill- it's at least irreproducible. So so they do all, all those kinds of tricks. And look, the other the other thing, it's kind of interesting. Everybody sort of describes evolution this way. I've had massive arguments with people that I really respect who are obviously much smarter than I am, but but are totally wrong about one thing. Nothing. There's no. There's no possible way at all, mathematically speaking. And, and I, look, I, you can do the evolution on a computer. Dawkins did it. I've done it many times. It, it's not a hard program. You write it in basic. It's really not difficult. 
Um, and, and a simple case will do, right? Because a simple case is actually better. You're not getting one cell. You're not getting one human. That's never happening, right? In order for something to evolve, it's the, the, the base thing that turns into the thing that evolves has to be spread out all over the place. It has to be. And so you look in genetics right now, and, and if you pay close attention, you'll see there's a bunch of people going, well, maybe not all humans started in Africa. It looks like they might've started in three different places at once. One of them is Europe. And it could be four or five different places. There's no actual way for us to know that, I think, ultimately. But there's a lot of indication right now in genetics that there's actually a, a native European development that, roughly speaking, would be uh, Neanderthals or Neanderthal-like. Uh, now, there's some other people that dispute that and say, well, there's actually evidence that there's Neanderthals and Homo sapiens in Europe that started in Europe and didn't come out of Africa. Now, how I don't know how you're going to validate or any of that stuff, but it's interesting that that's actually in the literature now that people have actually talked about this. Because if you think about it, well, it almost certainly has to be true. You can't, for example, you can't seed the game of life, uh, uh, you know, in, in the computer with one without adding a random number generator that generates more. Like it doesn't, quantity one never works. Like it never works. And everybody assumes quantity one and then says, well, if you can do this with quantity one, you can do it with quantity 10. And, and that's actually never true ever. Like never true. Uh, quantity one is a special, quantity zero is a special case. Quantity one is a special case. Everything else is a similar case and everything changes at scale. This is why reading Nassim Taleb is useful because he talks about the change in scale changing the nature of randomness, actual randomness changes when the numbers get too large. So at a certain point of large numbers, the, the same randomness produces structures. It produces order. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy things, it doesn't increase entropy, it decreases entropy. Well, obviously we have a lot to talk about. And today <laughs> we've only got through emergence but the other half of the equation that you talked about is being is good. And I'd like to explore your mind about that if we could do that in a future episode. Absolutely, we can try. I don't know what I know about being. Uh, that's well, that's, a, that's you're a tricky the, you're topic. The one, you're the one who lined them up on either side of the equation. I, I, I agree, I gotta do my homework in order to talk about being. Uh, so it's good that we ran out yeah. of time. Uh, otherwise I'd be, I, I, I'd being in trouble right now. Because we've been going for an hour and 45, so so I really do need to wrap it up. But I want to finish off with when you were talking about um, things starting all over the place at one time. A year or two ago, I had on a couple of uh, genetic, genetic biology, molecular biology. I can't remember what their background is, but, but they wrote a wonderful book called uh, The Stairway to Life. And they're looking at what are the things that that need to be explained in order to get from non-life to life and what are the problems at each step on this stairway. And, you know, they did a good job on it because actually all 14 stairs, you, you can't get to the first step without getting through the first problem. The first problem is insuperable. But after they'd explain this insuperable problem, then they would say, but we'll give you that one. You can have that for free. Now let's move up to the next step. And they did that with every step. So 
by the time you got to the end, you're like, man, the numbers on this are just impossible. But but Change 10 was one of the authors of this book, and she is um, a brilliant researcher. And she said, after all the research that I did on on cells and on uh, eukaryotic cells, she said the conclusion that we have come to is it's not a tree of life. It's something more like a forest of life. It has to be. There's no other option. Right. Right. So, um, so I would recommend that book to people, Stairway to Life. And um, yeah, so I also recommend Andrew Clavin's book, The Truth, The Beauty and Tr The Truth and Beauty, The Truth and Beauty. Very, very good book. And it's been great talking to you and we'll get together again soon, I hope. Yeah, Thank yeah. Let me, I want everybody to check out Navigating Patterns. I'll put a link. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully people can find useful stuff there. I get all kinds of content. Most of it's cultural cognitive grammar. Right, I've got some history talks that I do usually with Adam uh, and, and a bunch of other things. We talk about morality and ethics and uh, we, we do a great commentary on the game B, game A, game B thing. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a, there was a video out a while ago about that that we broke down. That took several hours. That was the hardest video I've ever done in my life. Uh, you know, I did that with Emmanuel. Um, so you can see some of the stuff these people are talking about, especially with emergence. I'm probably going to do a talk on emergence so soon. So mm -hmm. yeah, I got a bunch of stuff planned. So there's always new stuff coming out. Great. Well, talking to you is a little bit like drinking from a fire hose because you're so knowledgeable and you're, you obviously have opinions. <laughs> oh, well, well, thank you. I, I, and they come I know out all at once and I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to get a grip on it while you're talking. So it's, uh, it's quite a delight talking to you. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot there and it's just very obvious to me how it all fits together. And yeah. everyone else has been confused by uh, confused by uh, knowledge and distracted by this extra knowledge and these extra promises and crazy things that, you know, have nothing to do with how to live a good life, I would argue. Well, so somehow you're distinguishing between this um, navigating the patterns and kind of analyzing the patterns and trying to get a grip on the big picture you're distinguishing between that and a systematic version of of trying to make boundaries that are too too crisp you know too many too many little cells like building right. graphs and everything of, of all your ideas yeah yeah well and it and it's it really is you know jordan peterson talks about levels of analysis it really is mm -hmm. about proper levels of analysis and in the postmodern world we've we've lost the idea of proper level of analysis and now you know people think they can interpret moby dick as a as a treaty on gender or something and while that is a possible thing to do it is also an invalid and unhelpful thing to do and and people don't they've lost that sense right they just they're in an anything mm -hmm. goes gnostic cesspool world instead of you know being able to constrain themselves to no no, no there's certain rules and, and starting points and they're not optional reminds me of the bible verse everything is possible but not everything is beneficial yes <laughs> right yes, that is true there, there's a frame okay mark it's too much fun talking to you we could go on all night but i gotta go <laughs> all right great okay. thanks karen bye bye